Think of a time when you experienced a conversation that left you with a new perspective or perhaps an inquiry, or you might have felt that something has shifted in you after that conversation. Maybe it helped you gain a new level of clarity or moved you to take action. That was a coaching conversation. Hello and welcome to the coaching conversation. Um, this is our second episode, and I'm really excited uh, to have um, Diana Larson with me today. Um, I have been following her work for a while, and I came across her work through, um, you know, most uh, popular, the Agile retrospective, uh, making good teams great. And um, I also have been following her work on the Agile fluency diagnostics. Uh, and I'm really excited to have her with me today. Um, Diana, welcome. Oh, thank you, Salah. It's a, it's a pleasure to be here. Yeah. Yeah, so I'm, uh, I'm really um, curious about some of the things that you've done and uh, how your journey unfolded over, over time. Um, what's, uh, you know, what, what got you where you are today? Like, uh, well, a lot of people have heard this story, but I'll, yeah. I'll try to, I'll try to keep it not, I'll try to keep it short. But, um, so I actually started out, um, as an instructional designer <laughs> and, um, then moved into, um, sort of training and development and employee development and organization development. Until I was working in the late 80s and 90s, I was working mostly in work process design. So organization design, work process design uh, arena, that, that sort of niche of organization development. And we would go into companies that felt like their work process you know, wasn't giving them the outcome that they wanted. And uh, we would work with their folks to help their folks actually redesign their work. We would just bring in principles and we'd bring in some, you know, some trainings about what made a high quality of work life and what made a high quality product or a service. And, and then we would, you know, work with folks to come up with their own work process design. And primarily I was working with folks who were doing, who were knowledge workers. I worked in, high-tech manufacturing and engineering organizations and um and also it uh, technical kinds of things and uh, so i did a lot of meeting facilitation and training and working coaching folks because what ended up happening was every single time we did not come in with an outcome in mind. We, you know, were guided by the folks and the nature of their work. And because we were working with knowledge workers, um, which I now think of as learning workers, um, every single time they created a workflow that included cross-functional self-organizing teams. In the 80s and 90s, we called them self-managing and then self-directing, but it's the same. And, um, but they would pull together teams, they would reorganize their work and pull together teams of people that had various skills so that they could all serve the customer in a kind of seamless flow and so on. And, but because of my work uh, with meeting facilitation, 
I was invited to um, a, attend an event by Norman Kurth, who wrote the Project uh, Retrospectives book, um, that was a, a group of about 20 people spending a week together talking about coaching and consulting practices. And at that, and so the first one was in 1997, and I continued to attend over the next several years. And at that event, I met a number of folks who ended up later being Agile Manifesto signers and um, people who had put a lot of effort into sort of the shift from thinking of um, thinking about small talk and object-oriented and patterns and to moving into thinking about what were some lightweight software development methods and so on. And so as we began to talk, um, I was really interested in how they were approaching it in the software world. And they were really interested in what I knew about how, you know, what that meant for organizational change and how managers needed to think differently about managing the work. And one way and another, I teamed up for a little while with Joshua Karievsky and a couple of other folks to do some presentations at conferences about those topics. And it just rolled into, I became a part, you know, fairly early part of the Agile movement just by that fluke of being invited to that event and then showing up. And, um, and then after that, I, so I began to look around and say, well, what contribution can I make here? And I wrote a few things. Um, Kent Beck had me write something for his, uh, some Cutter IT journal uh, issues that he edited. And I, I wrote a commentary for that. And Joshua and I were, of course, doing the, um, com presenting at conferences. And Norm was having me come in and, um, do be facilitator for some retrospectives end of project retrospectives that he was doing and um so that all kind of kind of kept rolling to we started the retrospective facilitators gathering together in 2002 and out an outcome of that was i met esther and she and i began collaborating and decided that it might be a good idea if we wrote the Agile Retrospectives book. We didn't have that title in the beginning, but but that's how. And so, and then um, because of that, I also met Linda Rising, and she invited me to be a part of the Agile Alliance Board of Directors. And you know, it just <laughs> yeah. those things. You know, I I just kept the, kept opening new doors, and um, and so I looked for ways to contribute with the Retrospectives book and the liftoff book about you know helping teams get started because we had done quite a bit of that in the work process days and then um and then that rolled into uh, james james and i writing the agile fluency model article and and then writing a book with my son five rules of accelerated learning because that's the continuing theme through the whole thing is how do we help individuals and groups of people at learn on the job, learn at work most effectively. And that goes, you know, goes all the way back to where I started in instructional design of help loving the idea of helping people learn the things that they wanted to learn and that were most important to them. So that's how it all worked. Wow. <laughs> it kinda... Yeah. It's 
quite a look you know in retrospect it looks like it's something i could have planned but it yeah. <laughs> it certainly wasn't planned yeah yeah and that's a great insight because you know most uh, most of the time people think that there is like this like one you know one way of getting somewhere uh where you know in 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 the story you just mentioned there is uh there's a lot of uh you know, uh, tipping points or, or yes. events, yeah. events that kind of like took you on a, on right. a, on a uh, yeah, trajectory that you, you might have not planned. Right. right. So, um, so any particular event or tipping point that you think has kind of launched that, uh, uh, journey? Um, well, I don't, I don't know if you would call this a tipping point, but because of the way I entered into the Agile community, the, you know, I came in mostly thinking in terms of extreme programming. And I went to, I went to an early a, a, a extreme programming, programming boot camp in 2000 or 2000, I think it was in January 2001 just like a month before the Agile Manifesto was signed. And, um, and I, you know, I had some observations about that. But, and then I started hearing more about some of the other methodologies that were included in, in those, that, uh, those ideas of the lightweight methods and, and learning about, you know, something about Scrum. And I think one tipping point was just saying, I want to learn about as many of these methods as I can. I want to understand not just extreme programming, but I also want to understand Crystal. I want to understand Scrum. I was in like the second ever certified Scrum Master workshop that Ken Schwaber did. Um, and so that, I think, that choice of saying, I want to learn about all of these. I, I hung out for a while with the um, uh, DS, DSDM folks in London and yeah. went to some of their conferences. And so, you know, learning, deciding that I wanted to get the broadest possible picture of what was happening in that part of the software world, um, I think made a big difference because that uh, caused me to open doors I might not otherwise have opened. Mm -hmm. And, and I met people that I wouldn't have otherwise met. And, and, you know, both Esther's and my participation in those early days in Scrum and, and in the Scrum Alliance, um, you know, caused the Scrum folks to decide that retrospectives should be part of how they defined what were the basic scrum practices, which it wasn't there at the very beginning. Yeah. And um, so then, you know, and then, and then writing the Agile Retrospectives book probably was choosing to do that was probably the second tipping point. Because, yeah. you know, as you know, consultants and coaches, once you write a book, you get so much smarter the day after the book is published. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. in the eyes of the world. And so that, you know, just the fact that I had published that book and, and you know, that over the years, that's opened so many doors for me and um, given me opportunities to meet people and see organizations all around the world that I wouldn't have otherwise gotten to see. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, no, that definitely the retrospective is, um, mm -hmm. you know, has, has helped uh, a lot of teams and um and and there is a theme here that i that i 
you know, I see like this, this idea of learning. Yeah. Uh, I mean, after all, that's like how, you know, one of the lines on the, on the agile uh, manifesto is like uncovering better ways. So it's constantly trying to find you right. know, new ways of learning. Um, so what have been some, some of the ways in addition to the retrospective that you've helped, um, you know, others make or your, your, your teams or, or, um, you know, clients that you work with mm-hmm. that made things, you know, more clear, or brought some clarity or made that invisible, visible. Somewhere. Well, the, the thing I, that Esther and I wrote about very early on, but I, I haven't, we, I mean, and she's actually developed it a lot more publicly than I have. But this idea that, that I brought with me from those work process design days that we needed to think early on about the challenges that managers were going to have um, in managing a completely different way. I mean, we talk about teams moving from waterfall to agile or, you know, incremental and iterative. And, but there's very, at least early on, there was very little conversation about the impact that that has on managers. And even now we talk about the agile fluency model. It's a model of team behaviors, but I also follow that by saying with enormous organizational and management implications because you cannot manage cross-functional teams self you know whatever whatever cross-functional self-organizing teams you cannot manage teams like that in the same ways that you manage groups of individual contributors Mm -hmm. it just doesn't work and and that is one of the big challenges that organizations face when they try to do agile adoptions is they forget that they need to be also preparing their managers for a different world. And um, so that always, that's something that I have brought when I've gone into organizations to do my own coaching and consulting. Um, You know, that idea of we need to be working with the managers early on. We need to be working with other parts of the system early on. We need to be talking to HR about how their policies impact teams. Um, We need to be talking to facilities about how their policies might impact how teams create their work environments Um, that, you know, thinking more actually in terms of the system that teams are embedded in and what needs to shift there. um, That's always been a part of my work and, um, and, but I haven't been, um, you know, that's not the part that I've written about or that I've, that I've talked about as much in public. Uh, I did more in the early days, but um, after the Agile Retrospectives book was published, I, I didn't as much. But I was always using those things and using those tools that I had learned early on. And, and it does make a huge difference. And understanding that when you're making a shift when you're adopting Agile in your organization, you're making a shift to Agile, that is change. That is an organizational change. Even if you're only shifting one team, it will eventually have, and usually sooner rather than later, impacts on the rest of the organization. And, and so for thinking that you can just go in and tweak the teams without dealing with the, the larger changes that are going to happen is 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 false it just it leads people down a path of not feeling like their agile adoption has been very successful 
Yeah. And um, so, so those are some things, you know, kind of in the background that I've been thinking about and as well as, you know, and that leads me to think about learning organizations and, you know, how to, how do organizations learn? And um, so for a while I've been doing a, a talk called um, either leading heroic learners or uh, leading teams of heroic learners, those kinds of things and how leadership of knowledge work teams is really about setting conditions for people to learn most effectively. And, um, and, you know, the feedback loops that you get from customers, that's, that's learning. And so how are, how do we get really good at, um, at incorporating those, that new knowledge, that, those new ideas that we get from in, how we engage with our customers? How do we incorporate that into our work as efficiently and effectively as we can? Um, those are all, you know, those are all pieces and parts of it. And, you know, you can only sort of focus on one bit at a time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, it feels, but, yeah. Yeah. It, 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 yeah. It feels like, you know, a lot of, uh, puzzle pieces and yeah. trying to like, you know, help, um, you know, leaders and organizations to mm-hmm. like, you know, connect those pieces, um, so what has been, a, you know, some of the ways that you've started that conversation? Because, you know, usually, you know, everyone is, you know, every company, I mean, they know that learning is important, mm-hmm. um, but there seems to be not enough focus on that. Um, it seems to be more driven by results or, you know, bottom line. It's not, you know, the learning. Mm-hmm. So how you, how you bring that piece into, the, into those areas? Yeah, well, that was that was one, um, I guess, impetus for the agile fluency model, because, of course, when we're talking about fluency, we're talking about new skills people have learned to do well and do fluently, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so the but in the model, we frame it as how do you make sure that your teams have what they need, this, the investments and supports that they need to give you those results that you want as leaders. And so having starting with a conversation with leaders using the model or if people are allergic to models, just using it in my own head, um, having that early conversation about what is it that you're really trying to accomplish here where, you know, what is it that you are looking for from your teams that you're not getting yet and that you think would, you know, help your business and, and help your customers to help your business and, and those kinds of things. And so staying focused on that and then being able to bring it back and say, well, to get those things, it's perfectly possible to get those kinds of results um, and here are the investments that you'll need to make in your teams to get there. Hmm. And that is a really different kind of conversation than most leaders expect to hear when they're talking with people who are trying to sell them agile. And, um, and I think that's been one of the difficulties is there's been this idea that really smart people can come up with the perfect way to do agile everywhere and whether that's scrum or kanban or you know whatever it might be 
and you know it there it, there is the one right way um although lots of different people have different one right right ways yeah but you know but people come in and say this is the one right way to do this and and at some level leaders like that confidence and certainty but on the other hand after a while it doesn't pay off because it's not it may or may not be nuanced enough to you know flexibly fit the current situation and make sure that the teams have the fluent proficiencies they need to you know deliver the results that the business is looking for yeah so yeah yeah, it's almost. I mean, that the uh, uh, you you might have noticed that I I the this the coaching conversation is is yeah uh, is is very similar to how you know coaching happened for individuals. Like you know, okay, where where do you want to go, and where are you today, and then and then you you kind of formulate some strategies. Like you know, maybe in an organizational. Um, you know, a context, mm -hmm. you know, there has to be some sort of like, okay, where do we want to go? So I think models are, are useful. Uh, and, and, you know, the, the fluency diagnostic or model has some way to point where you want to be in, you know, and how, um, you know, how, how, how long are you, is expected or uh, to to get there and then and then using some of the strategies like scrum or you know whatever the the, mm -hmm. the framework is um, so what do you do when when you know the organization or the leader I, I, I should say uh, that you're working with they don't really know where they want to go um, well, well I would I use a particular when in our trainings for coaches to become licensed in our materials we teach a particular way of kind of having that conversation that helps leaders get clear um mm. yeah i mean i don't always know what i want to do on any given day but sometimes yeah. if people will ask me some questions i figure it out more quickly than i might have flailed my way through it otherwise and um and so having a set of questions to ask about you know well kind of how what what is the difference that you are looking for here what have you already identified and and if if those differences happened you know what would you expect to see that's different in your organization that would tell you it had happened and happened in a good way that is really helping you and if and if you saw those things happening in your organization what would you expect the um the benefit that you would that would come back to the organization for for doing that you know what what in, in addition to being able to see these changes what 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 outcome would that would that have and you know thinking through things in kind of that stepwise way um can help leaders figure that figure things out that they didn't know before and they're usually they're often very grateful and the other piece is i um i don't work with leaders that are um uh, that that don't want to hear or that mm -hmm. don't want to learn so i'm very particular about my customers um i won't work with just anybody <laughs> they yeah. they have to kind of prove to me too that they are you know that they are willing to think deeply about what they want and need 
and yeah. that they are willing to have that conversation because otherwise I'm not sure I can help them anyway. And it's just a big waste of both of our time. So, um, so I look for folks where a, I can get access to the people who have the um, wherewithal to, you know, either the internal company influence or the budget or some, some leveraging point that they can actually make things happen in their organization or, you know, encourage things to happen in their organization, set the conditions for things to happen. And, um, and so those are the folks I like to work with. And otherwise, you know, I'm not, I'm not that interested. So I end up working not usually with a lot of very large companies because often the um, bureaucracy is so um, set and, um, a friend of a mentor and friend of mine many years ago, her name's Kathy Dana Miller, is an organization development person specialist. Um, she used to talk about organizational arthritis, that organizations got rigid wherever there were the joints, you know, mm -hmm. wherever there it was there were connectors. Um, um, because they would set up these policies about how people could interact or, or departments could interact and things and that it created organizational arthritis. So I try to stay away from organizations that have developed too much organizational arthritis. Right. <laughs> yeah, that, that's actually, that's a great metaphor. Uh, uh, yeah, I look for folks that are still have some flexibility and <laughs> Yeah. can can make some changes yeah 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 i think i mean that willingness uh yeah. is, is really important um because sometimes you know as a consultant or a coach i mean we wear like multiple hats and 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 sometimes you know uh leaders or companies they, they think that they 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 want someone to tell them the answer yeah. uh, but they're not willing to really take any action to um to to gain more clarity right right so um it becomes very hard to to learn faster yeah yeah um, so it brings us back to this like the value of, of learning that that you mentioned earlier um, and so what's you know what what is some of the you know the the techniques or tools I mean obviously the agile fluency model is is a, is a big part of, of the tools that you've developed and used mm -hmm. um, what uh, what are other techniques or tools that you have you know um, brought to companies or that well, would help accelerate the learning? Right. Well, two that I've you know that I've written about are uh, initially chartering the teams, um, mm -hmm. getting clear about the product vision together, uh, getting clear about what each team's contribution to that product vision is. Do they you know are they con are they the only team working on this product? Are they uh, one of a number of teams? And what are their individual and unique contributions to making that product go? Um, and, um, you know, and then the, the parts of that, the knowing that purpose and then spending a little time helping the team align and get ready to do its work together and then helping the team understand something about the context that it's in. And then all the other parts of liftoff that might be necessary, you know, hearing about how um, this product or this effort that the team is being asked to put in, you know, how is that, where does that sit in the overall business direction and wh what contribution is that making? 
Um, and then if there's, you know, any additional training or background that teams need before they can get started, tooling, you know, any of those kinds of things, making sure that those things are as, as much in place as we can make them before we, um, before we start or restart. Sometimes teams are gotten to a place where they need to sort of stop and hit the reset button and restart. Um, so I think those, that's really important because that sets a tone for the importance of learning. Yeah. And, then, and then moving into ensuring that people are regarding whatever uh, meetings or, or collaboration practices that they are putting in place, that they are doing that in a context that encourages learning, that, that they understand that, you know, you don't do sprint planning and a stand-up meeting and a demo just so you can check off on the box that you did all those things this sprint, but you do them for a learning purpose. You know, you do the sprint planning because you really want to learn what is possible for us to get done this time and how is that different than what we could get done last time and what direction are we trying to head that in. And then at the daily standup, I really have encouraged folks to move. I have a whole list of different three question things that I use. Um, but one of them is what did I learn yesterday that could help the whole team? what am I hoping to learn today and what's getting in the way of me learning the things I need to learn. Mm. And, um, you know, those are, that's a different way of thinking about it, but thinking about that stand-up meeting as an opportunity to, you know, to learn what, what the, t uh, my other teammates are doing, if we're not mobbing and so on. I mean, if you're mobbing, then you don't, need that meeting but um if people are working in pairs or or working on separate projects research projects or sp spikes those kinds of things you might need to take the time to do that stand-up meeting and and just very briefly share with each other so that people know what's going on and then you know learn and then the demo showing real customers um what it is, what you've built so far and having the incentive to know that you're going to have to face them mm -hmm. and then learning from the feedback that they give about you know what makes things easy or hard for them or what else they might need to get their job done and um so that's another learning challenge and you know so and so it just keeps going and then of course the retrospective how do we how do we respond to all these learning challenges what are we what do we want to do with the way we do our engineering practices what do we want to do with the way we interact with other parts of our organization how are we doing in our own internal collaboration i mean it's such a rich opportunity and you don't i mean esther and i proposed a five-step model for um for holding a retrospective and making sure that you can get through that in a good way so that so that groups of people can learn together um and and then and then there's also some of the information that's out there about the way they in the military they do something called after action reviews or lessons learned and mm -hmm. at the firefighters or uh, toyota to the toyota kata the improvement kata yeah. that is out there i mean all of those as long as you are focused on learning in the service of improving what's going on and in all aspects um 
so those are the kinds of things I bring. I, I look for the opportunities to make sure. And then I look for the opportunities for ongoing learning so that, um, you know, a number of organizations I've worked with, I didn't necessarily influence them to do that, but uh, at some point or another have decided to do, um, you know, set aside learning so that everyone, learning time, so that mm -hmm. everyone can work on projects or um of their own or that they can bring back or that you know just is a way of them learning more about some part of what's going on that interests them yeah um that yeah. that support it really makes a big difference and then of course you know working with the managers so that they can learn how they can be how they can take what they already know and use it in a different way just to continue to be effective yeah so. yeah i mean the the it, it, it sounds like you're you're really bringing the focus back on learning and yeah. how do we learn fast and, right. and and not just learn fast but also how do we facilitate the learning and create the space for it to emerge and and, and right. happen um, and part of that is creating a network because mm -hmm. you know it's a lot of the things that people need to learn i don't know how to teach i don't have experience with and so creating a rich network of colleagues who i can ask to come in or to help out or I mean, I think that's important too. Yeah, yeah. So the the you know when you said the the questions around like you know what did you learn today? What what are you planning to learn? And you know, is there anything that is getting in the way of learning? That's you know those questions are could be applicable to not just this you know the the daily standup. It could be like something that is organizational wide. Like you know what is what is getting in the way of us learning and mm -hmm. you know um, fast. Um, well, and to be fair, I have to say I borrowed that from one of the early ex extreme programming books, the Ken Hours, uh, I believe it's may not be the red book, it might be one of the pinker ones. But, <laughs> <laughs> but the, the that talked about using that daily stand up as a learning, uh, as a learning opportunity. And that really got me thinking about about bringing that in. So, mm -hmm. so I, I like to give credit where you know where it's due and ken hour was was my source for that one yeah yeah that's um yeah that when i think about these questions and and they are very uh, you know they're they're also applicable at the at the individual level not just the team mm -hmm. level like what what do i want to learn today like you know you know imagine if you know team members go into uh you know a project or building something you know understanding like what is it that they're trying to learn Mm -hmm. um so you've you facilitated a lot of you know different learning environments and and you have um have a an understanding of like instructional design and learning what is you know what do you say is like the most you know the biggest impediment for for learning oh the biggest impediment oh that one's hard well it's um it, I would say it's lack of connection. I mean, one of the things that you were reminding me of is how much I love open space conferences where people get to really manage all their own learning. And, and I've had the real pleasure of being able to facilitate those over the years. And it's just, it's like watching a beautiful dance to me. Mm -hmm. um, and so when I think about that as sort of the, as one of the things I think of as the epitome of, really effective rich group learning going on you know things that block people from talking to each other things that where 
um, I think of learning as the, it's like respiration, mm. right? Learning is the inspiration and then exhaling, you know, and so, right, the inhaling and exhaling, right? And, and it's like when people think that they can just keep work, 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 work without ever taking time to stop and reflect and learn about what they've just done and decide what that tells them about what they should do next. It's like trying to breathe by only exhaling, right? Just, yeah. you know, and, and you, you can't do that. You need, you need both. You need the inhale and the exhale to make it really work. And so you need the, the time to reflect and learn and, and then the time to practice what you've learned or try out mm -hmm. the new thing. And, and, um, and so I think that's one of the big things is when people aren't given time, space, permission, um, that gets difficult. And, you know, sometimes that happens because of that or organizational arthritis, right? There, there's blocks put in the way mm -hmm. and, um, and, or having conversations across organizational boundaries when we really need to learn something about what is going on over there because that's going to impact what goes on here with what we're trying to do and um, and some of those kinds of things. So I think, and then people have a very hard time. School, a lot of schooling not all of it, but a lot of schooling teaches us that we're supposed to know it all. Mm. And that gets in the way of us learning because we think we were already supposed to know it. And so then we just get imposter syndrome and we get, you know, all these things, oh, I was already supposed to know this and I don't know it. And oh, there's something wrong with me. And really, yeah. really it's just, no, you give yourself permission to learn the new thing, right? And, and I think that, that sense, I mean, I, um, it, it, it's interesting to me. I was in an organization one time where I was doing a presentation to kind of an all hands presentation. And, and I was told, don't expect any questions at the end <sighs> because yeah. no one can hear, can admit that they didn't already know it all. Mm. And it made me so sad but they had all been hired based on the premise that they were experts in their field. They were the best and brightest. And so they didn't dare show that there was something, you know, some area where they weren't fully capable and competent. Yeah. And that just, you know, it was sad. It made me sad. Um, and I, I felt bad for them. <laughs> Yeah, because yeah. I like to go through the world going, I don't know anything about that. Tell me more, you know. Yeah, <laughs> and yeah, I absolutely. Just, and, you know, there's a joy in that, and uh, for me, and and it felt like you know some of these folks were being blocked from that by by the expectations that they already should know it all, both that the organization was putting on them and that they were putting on themselves. They were adopting yeah. for themselves. Yeah, yeah. It's almost like this the vicious loop of like you know. You know, um, someone, you know, is, is, you know, expecting people to know it all and then right. people pretend to know it all. Right. <laughs> so I can just keep like, you know, right. reinforcing each other. 
Um, so that, that's, that's a very, um, I mean, this is a very rich conversation. <laughs> I see a lot of, a lot of, a lot of, uh, blockage <laughs> or, right. or like you said, you know, arthritis and organizational arthritis due to learning. And, uh, you know, it, it, it's, it's very hard to, to kind of like, you know, open up those channels and start to kind of bring more humility i guess i don't know what to call mm-hmm. it but just the humility in terms of like okay we don't really know everything we need to uh we need to allow some some space for learning uh, and um so it ha- what have you noticed you know with organization that has been successful in, in you know making learning or or bringing more you know time and space for learning um what has been some of the things that they do well, like, you know, that, that maybe others can, can learn from? Um, well, I think one thing is, is uh, frequently checking in on how the team is doing. I mean, the team checking in on itself, people on the team taking responsibility to do that uh, and, and knowing that it's, that they are not only just have permission to do that, they're actually encouraged to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's an important indicator. Um, the the uh, time for, um, I mean, I'm thinking about a couple of organizations I know that have actually contributed a, a lot uh, back to the community because their people show up at conferences and share what they've learned. And, you know, it's a, it's very much kind of that gift economy sharing back kind Mm. of thing and, and bringing new practices um, because they share what they learn uh, as part of their work. I think that's, that is, and, and then the organization is supporting them to do that, to go to conferences and, and do that now, you know, it's going to be very different now. We're not going to <laughs> fly across the country to go to conferences, at least not in the short term. Right. But I'm noticing that more and more folks are organizing online conferences now. Mm-hmm. And more and more folks are doing podcasts where it's just an opportunity for people to share, you know, what they can contribute back and, and um, you know, different, different forms, different formats are beginning to be discovered and, and unpacked for doing this, but in the past it was a lot was at conferences or local user groups or, you mm-hmm. know, taking the time to, to pull something together and say, Hey, we, we tried this and here's what happened for us. And it worked really well. And sometimes those, those things spread and sometimes they get misused, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, and so you want, you want folks to kind of make that adjustment, but um but there are things like, you know, um, I've heard about a number of organizations that do ongoing, regular, internal open space mm-hmm. conferences, mm-hmm. you know, quarterly or less, you know, maybe every other month. They take a day and they, they all get together and they exchange what they've all learned internally and they might invite some out from po- folks from the outside to just give them some, some fresh ideas. Um, but they're just, yeah. you know, those are the kinds of things I see. I see that kind of rich exchange going on uh, where people are looking for what they can contribute. And, you know, it's one of the things in uh, one of the principles of open space 
or actually it's the law of open space. It's called the law of mobility or it was originally mm -hmm. called the law of two feet. That if you mm -hmm. find yourself in a place where you're neither learning or contributing, mm. you know, go someplace where you can be contributing or you can be learning from someone. And yeah. when I see people actually putting that into action, I know that there's real learning going on in that organization. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. I'm, uh, I'm, I'm also a big fan of the open space, um, you know, technology and, and the, you know, how it kind of, it's almost unblock the, the impediments to learning because you're bringing people together, they share things and then, you know, they also take responsibility for their own uh, mm -hmm. learning, uh, which, which is very, um, you know, important. I'm sure you've seen like, you know, people are waiting for someone to teach right. them or to tell them and, you know, part of it is taking that, you know, responsibility of I'm responsible for my own learning. And that's what right. the law of mobility, um, right. you know, teaches us. Um, so, um, yeah, I mean, I can, I, I, I can spend hours <laughs> talking to you. Uh, <laughs> we can do it again sometime. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I, I would right. love that. So uh, one, one last thing that I'm really interested in, it's more like, you know, okay, so what do you do for, for like self-care? Like, you know, there's a lot of, you know, work that involves like, you know, helping people learn and change. And right. How do you take care of yourself? <laughs> how do I take care of myself? Well, you know, as I've gotten older, that's gotten more important. Mm -hmm. um, I, I pay attention, a lot of attention to, my physical well-being, I do, I was doing uh, regular strength training. I regularly um, see body work people to make sure that my body is staying in alignment um, and um, that kind of thing. Um, I, I try very hard to get a lot of sleep. Mm. Um, I make sure that I have things to do in my life that are extraordinarily satisfying, but not necessarily intellectual. I do a lot of different kinds of handcrafts. Mm. Um, I, I can't settle on just one, so I do a yeah. bunch of different ones. Um, and <laughs> but yeah, and I love learning how to how the new techniques and things for you know what how to do this crochet stitch or how to create that beading effect or whatever it might be weaving. Um, so I I. And I make sure that my relationships are um, solid and um, supportive, mm. you know, both in both ways. That I have people around me that I can turn to for support, and I give that support to other folks. And nature, I I like, you know, I like just being out in the, whether it's in our really luscious garden and yard um or you know going out into the woods i mean i live in oregon and so i'm mm. i'm so fortunate that it's it's never very Beautiful. far to some place that um where there's a lot of good oxygen being made by trees <laughs> yeah yeah i think I mean, yeah. that's important getting out yeah. and getting some uh, fresh air yeah. right um so yeah, Diana, thank you very much for uh, for your time and uh, spending uh, and, and sharing your insights and uh, wisdom here. Uh, really appreciate it. And again, it's my pleasure. <laughs>